This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our programming is made possible through the support of our members and friends. If you would like to make a donation to the center or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that it can aid one's understanding of a Dharma talk or Taisho if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Thank you for listening. Child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is us and samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana, upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living, all come from Zazen. Thus, one true samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and past clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two, not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form, in going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi! How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom! What is there outside us? What is there we lack? This heart is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Good morning. Good morning. Please sit comfortably. You can change postures as you need to. Chairs are available. So, um, a, a teacher of mine was reading some Kafka in a talk. And so I went back and was getting into some Franz Kafka. Uh, people know his writing, the Bohemian Czech writer, uh, I believe, late 1800s, beginning of the 20th century as well. Um, he said about reading, he said, if a book we are reading doesn't wake us up with a blow on the head, what we are, what are we reading it for? And he also said, a book must be an axe for the frozen sea inside of us. Uh, the frozen sea inside of us, really, that really struck me. Because I, I think of practice as the same way. It's practice is 
like an axe for the frozen sea inside of us. So what is, what is that frozen sea inside of us? Um, when, I, when I think of people who I admire, people who are wise or kind, I think why I'm moved by them is because they have qualities that I strive for myself. And they may be dormant, but I believe that that we all have the qualities that we admire in others. Maybe not the skills, maybe not the skill set that those qualities are being channeled through, but I believe that we have, most of us um, don't believe it, but innate inside of us are these qualities. And so practice in one way is, it's, it's acting, well, in two, two different ways. Practice helps us see how we are holding back within our own lives from these innate abilities and qualities. And it, secondly, it shows us that we do have them. Now that process takes a while. But I believe it, it, it really shows us that we do have these qualities. Maybe you don't believe it. Well, how does it, how does it show us these qualities? How does it show us our innate ability, abilities? Um, Kafka, again, he said, I think this is a pointer. He wasn't a Zen practitioner, of course, but I think what he says is very apt. He said, you don't need to leave your room. Remain sitting at your table and listen. Do not even listen. Simply wait. Be quiet, still, and solitary. The world will freely offer itself to you to be unmasked. It has no choice. It will roll in ecstasy at your feet. Hard to believe, but true. Our practice is really about not leaving the room. Not leaving the room of ourselves, of this present moment awareness. But, of course, there are lots of things and ideas that that make us leave the room. And so, I want to touch in on some of those today. And last week we got into this a little bit, so I want to continue talking a little bit about the student-teacher relationship. For those people who weren't here, we got into an article with Pema Chodron, who is a Tibetan teacher in the Tibetan lineage, and she talked a little bit about the what a teacher-student relationship is about and some of the pitfalls. And so I want to continue that conversation here a little bit. Um, 
with that question of how we get drawn off from remaining here. So, last time we talked about the difference between a teacher in, say, the Tibetan tradition, which they're called gurus. People, does anybody here not know what a guru kind of that general definition of that? A teacher who has a lot of authority and who we really turn over our power to. And, and last week you talked about how Zen, in Zen, teachers are not gurus. And yet, it's not uncommon for even senior students in Zen to treat teachers like gurus. Um, What do I mean by that? I mean um, that it's not uncommon for students to believe very strange things about teachers. <laughs> to believe very... Uh, to imbue them, to project onto them things and qualities that we are kind of making up. Um and I would say that it's not uncommon, well, hopefully it's getting more uncommon, for teachers themselves to believe that they have these abilities. Yeah. What, what abilities? Well, for one, um, being above the precepts, being above morality, you know, kind of like, I can do anything, right? You see, you've, you've seen this, and this is kind of a sparks as I said last week, by a conversation we had at a teacher's meeting recently about, the focus was about uh, an abusive teacher. So it's kind of fascinating. It's really fascinating to see how people will give their power over to teachers. But we tend to project all kinds of magic onto not just teachers, but all kinds of people in our life. We do this in romantic relationships, of course. We do this uh, when we see only the good qualities in somebody. But I've, I, my, my feeling is this, is that when we do that with people, when we find ourselves in this kind of magical la-la land with other people, it's usually one ingredient is missing. One ingredient. Well, at least one. And that's enough time spent with that person. You see, can, do you see what I mean by that? Like, with it, it, this is why in romantic relationships we hopefully will round out. Um, but with spiritual teachers, um, my, my feeling is that a lot of what reinforces that the way we project onto our teachers is we don't spend enough time with them. Um, does anybody... Rem I don't know if this is still on the air, but does anybody know the show... Um, it was an NPR news... or NPR show called um, Car Talk mm -hmm. <laughs> with Click and Clack, the Tapper Brothers. Yeah. Um, I used to love listening to that uh, with the off chance that maybe some 
sometime they would talk about a VW bus, just because I love VW buses. But but it wasn't um, it wasn't so uncommon for one half of a couple to call the radio show and ask for advice because they were having an argument with their spouse about something that was wrong with their car, right? So the husband calls and says, look, my wife and I are, we have this 19-whatever Honda Accord in the muff- and, and, and it's making a tremendous amount of noise. She says it's the muffler, right? But she couldn't possibly be right, right? And they go through and, okay, what are the symptoms, da 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 And one or two of the brothers say, well, yeah, it's the muffler, just like she said it was, you know. And, um, you know, shock, right? How could she be right? How could she be right? Because um, it's, it's, it's my wife. How could my wife be right? right? <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, this, is, this is common because we need an outside expert a lot of the time. That's what we're looking for, is somebody that's an outside authority to sort of grant us permission to say that our wife was right. You know. Um, we do this all the time. This is very common in business. That, let's say that a company hopes to take a certain strategy, a certain turn, a certain direction. They'll often hire outside consultants to come in to convince management of a certain direction. Even if they have people internally in that company that are experts and are saying the same thing, they'll hire experts from outside the company to come in because they're clean. This this phenomenon is known as um, an expert from afar. An expert from afar. Um, oftentimes it'll be done to also to to deliver bad news to employees they'll hire an ex- outside person in to come in and so we do this with spiritual teachers as well we we keep them at a distance so that they remain clean you see so that they remain unstained and and therefore we can uphold our projections our wishes about them but this this isn't Zen practice. This is this is certainly not what Zen is about. Because Zen is about intimacy with whatever is. Teachers do this, by the way, too. They'll sometimes, and I see this a little bit in myself. This um, wanting to kind of keep a distance with students. I think there's a healthy boundary there. But at the same time, there are certain uh, teachers can keep too much of a distance so that they also remain in their students' eyes kind of an expert, you know, not, they don't see the flaws, right? The students don't see the flaws in the teacher. It's not Zen, though. So last week, I, we, we touched on the importance of coming and coming to and remaining open in practice and how oftentimes, unconsciously, what we're doing when we come to a spiritual practice is we're actually looking for confirmation of what we already know. 
Like we want a group of people, we want a teacher, we want a practice that will affirm what we already believe about the world and about other people. And it feels really good when we find that. To have that, oh yeah. But as I said last week, the problem with that is that then when something doesn't kind of fit into our worldview, when the teacher or the teaching says something that we may not agree with, then there's kind of a recoil. There's kind of like a, well, I'm out of here. It doesn't fit with my ego identity here, right? There was a, um, there was an article that a friend of mine passed on to me, and it was called, um, When Is It Okay to Quit Church? When, was, when is it okay to quit church? And basically what that, it was written by a pastor, and his, his basic point was that we should probably stick it out. He, he worries that people are treating spiritual practice as, um, as a kind of a commodity, as a product. And therefore when it, when, when our needs are no longer being met, so, so, so-called needs, you know, uh, in other words, when we're, when we're being challenged maybe, or other times, then people decide, oh, I'm done. And they leave. And and so it's a hard it's a hard thing to figure out, right? Because there are legitimate times when we do need to go. We do need to go. But he says that we should we should treat our church or our sitting group or as family. In other words, part of what he's pointing out is that people are flawed in the community, like the leader <laughs> or the leadership or the people we sit with. That we're flawed. And so, but we just don't take off from family because they're flawed. Um, once I was, uh, I was teaching, doing some guest teaching at a, another Zen group that there was some thought of my, um, helping with the teaching on a regular basis in this group. And I was talking with and walking, taking a walk with a member of the group, and uh, after after a Sunday program, and he um, he just came out and said it. <laughs> he said, uh, "You know, you should try to walk a little slower." <laughs> what? Yeah. He said, "Yeah, you know, Zen teachers don't shouldn't walk that fast. You should have a slower walk. That's more what a Zen teacher should be like." <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> so when we have this preconceived picture of what we think we should get from a teacher or from the teaching or from a tradition, what are we missing out on? If we're doing this with spiritual teachers or the teaching, we can be sure that we're going to be doing this in other areas of our life. We're going to be doing this with other people. We're going to be getting into that same trap of projections with other people. And we're going to do it with ourselves as well. We're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to 
try to ignore the bad side of us or the or maybe the good side. We're going to ignore a part, parts of us that we don't want to see and we're just going to see ourselves through a certain light. And then what happens in practice, a meditation practice, an inward focus practice is then it becomes more of a way to sort of um, push things to the sidelines that we don't want to see and just focus on kind of being the perfect practitioner, you know. So, so you, you just check in with yourself to make sure that that's uh, that's not happening. That you're not using practice, co-opting practice to to sort of push away things that you don't want to see. So, basically, in Zen, we recognize that tendency to look outside of ourselves with teachers and for answers. But Zen throws it back on our lap. That's the power of Zen practices. It throws a, throws it back on us. And, you know, it's is it like that game of hot potato where somebody throws it and you immediately throw it back. Right? Throw it back. So it's sitting in your lap. Which I think brings us back to the story from last week. Does, does anybody remember it? Remember the story that we talked about at the end of last week? So we'll just review it. Okay. So um, it's the Tong Master Obaku. Um, his That's his Japanese name. His Chinese name is Huang Po. So Huang Po, um, instructing the assembly, said, You're all mash eaters. You're all mash eaters. However, you go around traveling on pilgrimages. What is your position today? Don't you know that in all the land of Tong, there is no Zen teacher? And at that time, a monk came forward and said, But surely there are those who teach disciples and lead communities. What about that? Huang Po said, I do not say that there is no Zen. It's just that there are no Zen teachers. So that was brought up at the end of the talk last time around the student teacher business. So I got curious about the um, this story to see if it would be in this this uh, anthology, the uh, Zen's Chinese heritage, which I use all the time here because it's the lamp records. It's um, the sayings and doings of most of the old masters. And so here's where here's where the story um, it actually starts a few minutes earlier. Okay? So this is it. By the way, uh, Obaku Huangpo um, was a large per, large man. Large man. Some people say it's seven feet tall. So, you know, unusually tall for a Chinese person. And he had a bump on his head. Um, and it's said that the reason he had this bump was from doing so many prostrations that this bump formed. And it's not inconceivable, because I think I, I, I talked about this one time in Zendo before. It's not inconceivable because in um, the Islamic tradition, you'll sometimes see uh, people with bumps on their head 
from doing prostrations. And what happens, I think, is the bacterial thing. Something gets in the forehead from rubbing on the carpet over and over and over again, and it kind of raises a bump. So it's not inconceivable that this is true. So here's this, here's this large Zen master. And so it says, one day, Zen master Longbo entered the hall to speak. When a very large assembly of monks had gathered, he said, what is it that you people are all seeking here? He then used his staff to try to drive them away, but they didn't leave. So he returned to his seat and said, you people are all drag slurpers. If you go on a pilgrimage seeking in this way, you'll just earn people's laughter. When you see 800 or 1,000 people gathered somewhere, you go there. There's no telling what trouble this will cause. When I was traveling on pilgrimages and came upon fellow monks, some fellows beneath the grass roots, which is, means a teacher, then I'd hammer him on the top of the head and see if he understood pain and thus support him from an overflowing rice, as, from an overflowing rice bag. If all I ever found were the likes of you here, then how would you ever realize the great matter that's before us today? If you people want to call what you're doing a pilgrimage, then you should show a little spirit. Do you know that today, in all of the great Tong, there are no Zen teachers? A monk then asked, in all the direction, there are worthies expounding the countless students. Why do you say there are no Zen teachers? Hong Po said, I didn't say there is no Zen, just there are no teachers. And then he goes on and carries on from there. So that's where this abbreviated version comes from. So, drag slurpers, mash eaters. Another translation is gobblers of dregs. Gobblers of dregs. The stuff that's left at the bottom of the wine glass or the beer, uh, beer keg or the whiskey barrel. In other words, it's got no value. The dregs. So what are the what are the dregs? Huang Po is fed up here. The other the other way to think about it, mash is spent grain. You're all drinkers of slop, spent grain. So he's fed up. Because just like today, there's so much spiritual materialism. You know, you go online and YouTube has just thousands of videos of spiritual teachers going on and on and on. And so during that time, monks would travel from monastery to monastery during the off periods and they would listen to talks and then um, they would they would pretend they would hear these quotes and they would pretend and they would they would requote these things that they heard and they would pretend that they were their own sayings or they would or they would um, actually believe that they understood what was happening what was being taught gobblers of dregs um, I think you could expand that meaning. 
how one way or another we get distracted. I think of negative thoughts, dregs, how we get drawn off into drinking the Kool-Aid, the dregs of our negative thinking about ourselves, about other people, how we get, how we consume, we're consumers, we consume these beliefs about ourselves and about others. And of course, from going to classic Buddhism, all this all comes from grasping, from clinging, grasping, trying to understand, to get a hold of things, because we feel like on some level we're lacking something. Even with negative thoughts, it kind of fills in the picture for us. Rather have we, Sometimes I think we'd rather have negative thoughts than no thoughts about ourselves. It kind of fills in the picture for us. So, so Huang Po says, what good is it from, to go place to place on pilgrimages? What's, what, what's the point? Hearing all these talks. Because fundamentally, he's saying that there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing to get. Nothing wrong with you. But we do do that. Um, there, there, it is common for, do, do people listen to online stuff, talks and read uh, things online about Zen and spiritual practice? Yeah. I mean, it's quite common. I do too. Um, how do we make it so that we're not becoming drinkers of dregs? How do we, how do we do that? Because really, there, fundamentally, there's nothing wrong with that doing that. There's nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with anything we do. But is it going to help us? We have to ask ourselves, is it good for us? Is it good for us? My nephew, um, I remember when he was little, he had this realization, which we all have, right? Which is, why is it that all the stuff that's tastes good is bad for you, and all the stuff that's good for you tastes bad? Annie Dillard, who is an American writer, she said, we always, we still and always want waking. We should amass half-dressed in long lines like tribesmen and shake gourds at each other. But instead, or she, to wake up, to wake up. But instead, we watch television and miss the show. This practice is about waking up. Right? So we have to ask ourselves, is all the consumption, the spiritual consumption that we do, is that in the service of waking up, or is it more in the service of putting us to sleep? So this is what Huang Po is trying to get his monks and us to see. He's trying to get us to see that. Not that we're just missing the point, but what is it that we're missing? What is it that we're trying to wake up to? That's the question. What is it we're waking up to? 
Because he says, when are you going to have your today? When are you going to have your today? When are you going to settle your life? When are you going to settle down and understand your life? And then he says it directly. He says, don't you know in all the land of Tang, which is China, because that's the Tang dynasty that was the empire then. Um, In other words, um, the whole world, because if you look at the ideogram for China, I think, uh, I could be wrong about this, but there's a kind of a, a square kind of thing with a line running through. And this is meant to be the cart with the axle running through the center. So so it means that China is the center of the world, right? Kind of like we feel as Americans. That America is, of course, the center of the, the universe, right? So in all of the universe, don't you know that there are no teachers of Zen? Which is a curious thing. It's an odd thing for a teacher, a Zen teacher in China to say, that there are no teachers in all of China. Um, so what does he mean? When I was, when I was um, a teacher, a school teacher, and, and also as a kid, I remember this, this same phenomenon, um, so I'll go with the kid one. When I was a kid, I remember a couple of times when I was out at the mall, you know, going to time out, the, the, the arcade, and, and you walk out, and, and I saw, like, Miss Conway. Like, you know, the third, my third grade teacher. And so, oh my God. You know, she exists outside of school? You know, to, because back then, you just didn't see your teachers outside. It, it, I don't know about today, but um, it was... And then, you know, she saw me, and she was equally surprised, like, oh, <laughs> you know, like, here, it's the weekend, and, you know, right. So it's like this collision of universes, you know, this total collision that happened. Um, and in that collision, um, it really forces you, like, wait a minute, this, is per- this person has a role other than a teacher, they're walking with bags under their arms. They just went shopping, and they have like a drink in their hand, and all this stuff. You know, um, it really forces the mind to change, to see things beyond those roles. And this is what we need to do. We need to dissolve those roles that we inhabit. Teacher, student, parent. We need to embody them, but we need to dissolve the ideas about them. I've told a few of you about this. Um, there was a teacher that I've worked with who said when he was going to Dokesan with his teacher, Philip Kaplow, um, <clears throat> he was working on his first koan. Um, and for people that don't know, after a certain point in the getting to know process of coming to Doksan and working on a first koan. The, the Doksans can get shorter and shorter. And to the point where sometimes it's just if you're not there, present, a hundred percent, then it's just ding-a-ling-ling and it's over. And it's not criticism, it's just meant to, okay, more to do, more work to do. Well, this teacher, when he was a student, got really fed up with that. 
of being wrung out over and over and over and over. Like, you know, three times a day for, for Doksan. So he got fed up and he went into Doksan and he was, and he said, you ring that bell, I'm gonna cut off your head. And he meant it. He meant it. And in that moment, in that moment, the roles fell away, you see. There was no boundary. It was, there was a freedom. Getting beyond our roles. And that's when his practice really kicked in. Yeah. Getting beyond our self-conscious attachment to who and what we believe we are and who and what we believe other people are. So at some point in practice, if we're really intent on understanding Zen, we have to drop all of these roles. Even, Even if just for a few minutes, even just for an instant, if we can see the world clearly with no labels attached it changes it it relieves it relieves us it provides a universal relief i'm not who i think i am i'm not the limited person they are not the limited person that i've taken them to be what a relief that's what huang po is pointing to here that's what he's trying to get us to see. So, we'll stop here, I think, and recite the four Bodhisattva vows, which are on page 36.